So the question we're looking at today is, what is yoga? So this is a question that often comes up, especially today when you see many different kinds of practice being used by people around the world and all of them being called yoga. So then people will begin to ask the question, well, what is yoga? What is it really? So one of the first things to mention on this subject is in the West we have, or we tend to have a particular view of yoga. Many people think of yoga as being asana practice. So that's all the postures that you see uh, famously appearing on social media. Uh, I would say that most people in the world who practice yoga don't practice asanas, or they don't have a dedicated asana practice, certainly in India. You could spend years traveling around India and never see anyone doing asana practice as part of their yoga. You'll see many people meditating, you'll see many people performing puja, you'll see many people chanting and doing all sorts of yogic practices. Uh, but seeing asana practice in yoga is quite rare. But in the West, of course, it's very common and so common that many people think that asana practice is yoga, even to the point where you'll see adverts for a class that says yoga and meditation, as if meditation is something different from yoga. So meditation is actually uh, part of yoga, it's called jhana yoga, and it's actually the most common form of yoga practiced in the world. So if we have all these different kinds of yoga being practiced, then that raises the question, what is yoga? Is it all of these things? And if it's all these different things, then what do they have in common? What do they have in common that makes them all yoga? Now you could say, well, it's a Sanskrit word, so we could just get the dictionary out and look it up. Unfortunately, that doesn't work very well in this case. The reason it doesn't work very well is that, like with many Sanskrit words, the word yoga has many different meanings, many different definitions. And so this happens in English as well. If you look at the word bark on a tree, or bark as in a dog barking, both those words are spelt the same and pronounced the same, but they have two very different meanings. Or if you look at the English sentence, I go to the shop to buy two oranges too, where the last word means as well. Then you've got the word to used four times, each time with a different meaning. And three of them are spelt differently, but two of them are spelt the same. So this happens a lot in Sanskrit. A lot of words are spelt the same, pronounced the same, with multiple meanings. So to understand what a word actually means, you have to look at it in its context. You have to look at it in the sentence, in the phrase, in the discussion, and then you can see what the meaning of the word is. So that's one way that we can begin to get a sense of what yoga means. There is actually another way that we can get a sense of what yoga means, and this is actually a more important method, and that's through practicing. That's through the practice of yoga. Because the original meaning of the word yoga is a particular state of being or a state of existence or a state of liberation or realization 
or enlightenment. And that's something that the yogic practices lead to. That's something that the yogic practices bring us into the direct experience of. So we can actually come to know what yoga is by experiencing it through the practices of yoga. So that method of understanding the meaning of the word yoga is actually the most important one. And even in the Sanskrit texts, there are multiple places where it says knowledge gained through direct experience is much more valuable than knowledge gained through reading books. So if we start by looking at the texts, the Sanskrit texts on yoga, to get a sense of what the word means, one of the earliest places that we find the use of the word yoga is in the Bhagavad Gita. And the word is used more than a hundred times to talk about yogic practice. And so one of the forms of yoga described in the Bhagavad Gita is jhana yoga or meditation. And the practice is described as sitting down, closing your eyes, bringing your attention to the peak of the nose or the point between the eyebrows, and then simply focusing your awareness on the divine. And this leads to the calming of the mind. The mind becomes still and quiet. And we begin to enter uh, higher states of consciousness. So this is one form of yoga described in the Gita. Another form of yoga is um, Bhakti Yoga, the yoga of devotion. And so this is a form of yoga that can be practiced at any time, in any moment. And it's actually just simply acting in a way where you're conscious of the divine, you're kind of surrendering your actions to the divine, you're remembering the divine in every moment. And so you can be doing anything, you could be doing any action, you could be tending to your garden, you could be out cycling, you could be um, singing praise, or you could be... Um, you know, anything at all, looking after your children. You could be cooking a meal, but you're doing it in a particular way. You're doing it with devotion, with love, and with remembrance, with remembrance of the divine. And so again, this elevates the consciousness and takes us towards liberation. Another form of yoga described in the Bhagavad Gita is karma yoga, or the yoga of action. And so again, this can be any action. You can be doing anything. Actually, even sitting down and closing your eyes and doing nothing is considered an action. So this is literally sleeping. Sleeping is considered an action. Getting dressed, brushing your teeth. Anything at all. Uh, taking care of your elderly mother, taking care of your children, uh, going to work. All of these things are actions, but with karma yoga, it's action done in a particular way. You can't just do anything any way you like, because that'll just lead to the same results happening as usually happen. So karma yoga involves action, basically where we're surrendering the fruits of our actions. So not holding on to anything that is gained through the actions that we perform. So we perform our action, there's some benefit from that, we don't hold on to it. It's surrendered. 
It's the word yajna used in the Gita. So we surrender the fruits of our actions. And again, through doing this, it gradually dissolves the ego, leading towards liberation. And there's one more yoga described in the Bhagavad Gita. That's the yoga of self-inquiry, or jnana yoga. And this is where we inquire into the true nature of the self, and you know, asking questions such as, who, are, who am I? And we basically go back and back, further and further inwards, into our own true nature. And again, this gradually leads to liberation. Now I've described these four yogas as, you know, they are on the outside quite different. Uh, maybe not karma yoga and bhakti yoga so much because, you know, that's to do with various attitudes that we have towards action in the world, actions that we're doing. Um, but meditation is quite different from that. And self-inquiry or jnana yoga can seem quite different from that, especially at first. But I've said that all these things lead to liberation. But why are they all called yoga? Why do they lead to yoga? Why not? So the word for liberation in Sanskrit is moksha. Why not describe them as practices that lead to moksha? So the word yoga comes from the verb root yuj, meaning to join or to bring two things together. And this actually is where we get the English word yoke from and uh, the piece of wood that joins two oxen together in English is called a yoke. So if the word yoga comes from the verb yuj to join, then what are the two things that are being joined? Now the Bhagavad Gita is described as being the summary of Vedanta, the summary of the teachings of the Vedas. And the spiritual texts of the Vedas are called the Upanishads. And in the Upanishads this is described. The two things that are joined are Atman and Brahman. So what is Atman? It's the individual self. What is Brahman? Brahman is all and everything. In the language of the uh, Upanishads, Prakriti plus Purusha. So Prakriti is all the things that in the universe that move and don't move. And Purusha is pure consciousness. So Prakriti plus Purusha means all and everything. So if yoga is the union of Atman and Brahman, this means that yoga is the dissolution of the sense of individual self and coming into a state of divine realization. And this is actually summarized by the Sanskrit phrase, I am Atman Brahman, this Atman is Brahman. So we end up in a state of unity or union. And so this is why these practices described in the Gita are said to achieve yoga or union with the divine. And we become a knower of Brahman. Okay, so that's a description of the way that the word yoga is used in the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is dated possibly to around 2,500 years ago, so about 500 BC.
around the time of the Buddha. Now about a thousand years later, you find another Sanskrit text called either called the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the Yoga Shastras of Patanjali. If you include the commentary, then often the term Yoga Shastras is used. And in this text, first of all, we find a, a definition of yoga given. Yoga is the stilling of the turning about or the whirlpool of the mind. So again, that comes back to the meditation practice, jhana yoga, where the stilling of the mind leads to transcendence. But one thing we also find in this text is a description of a practice of separation. Uh, there's a point in the text where it says that union is the problem. Yeah, things being joined together is the problem, and these things have to be separated. Okay, so this is sometimes confusing for people. So what's this separation, and how can this be part of yoga if yoga means union? Now the practice of yoga, especially the practice of meditation, involves stages. And there are different stages and different things happen in different stages. One of the first stages in the practice of meditation is the cultivation of the witness. The witness is simply the ability to observe things without getting caught up in them. So the ability to see things arising, either objects of the senses or objects of the mind, things like thoughts, memories. But being able to let them arise and let them pass away without believing them, getting caught up in them, or identifying with them. In other words, we separate ourselves from the objects of the senses and the objects of the mind. And we come to know ourselves as the, as the observer and not the observed. So this is an important stage in the practice of meditation because it allows the mind to develop tranquility. Before this, if we're just always believing our thoughts, getting caught up in them, identifying with them, then there's no tranquility, there's no calm, there's no peace. It's just constant turmoil. So in this stage we're actually separating, separating from identification with these objects. But then there's a further stage beyond this, once we come to rest in the true nature of our own being, the true nature of our own self, everything becomes very peaceful very still, which is a state called Vairagya, and then there is a gradual process of seeing that everything is within us, we're not separate from anything, and so we experience yoga or union. And at the end of the Yoga Shastras of Patanjali, he actually says, and then only Purusha remains, Purusha is the self. So only the self remains everywhere. So there's not two things, there's only one thing, or unity, or union. Okay, so we've looked at a number of practices so far, but we haven't talked about any of the practices that are common in the West at the moment. We haven't talked about asana practice, or breathing practices, which are also quite common. Something called breathwork, or pranayama. So these also start to be mentioned 
in the Yoga Shastras of Patanjali. Patanjali describes yoga as having eight limbs and one of the limbs is asana practice and another of the limbs is pranayama practice. And in the commentary there's actually a number of asanas listed and we start to see non-meditation asanas being introduced for the first time. So this is 1,500 years ago, or 500 AD, 500 CE. And we start seeing poses like the staff pose, where you're sitting on the floor with your legs straight out in front of you. Uh, camel is mentioned. Uh, curlew pose is mentioned. Elephant pose is mentioned. So these are not poses for meditation. These are poses for something else, for bringing about uh, a different kind of process. And we actually see this starting to be mentioned a hundred years earlier in the Sanskrit text. One of the Upanishads uh, lists a number of yoga asanas, and one of them is lion pose, the one where you're um, either seated with your hands on the floor in front of you, or on all fours with your hands on the floor in front of you. You have your mouth open, your tongue out, and you're exhaling sharply usually making a, a sound. So obviously this doesn't have anything to do with meditation. So we're starting to see from 400 AD onwards, we start seeing uh, asanas being used in their own right as yogic practice. And then in the yogic shastras, we have pranayama being introduced. So these are particular breathing practices the breath is being altered in particular ways. Now to understand how this could be yoga, how could asana practice be yoga, how can pranayama be yoga, we have to understand something about the human body, something about the way the human body is made. So the human body has energy channels within it, these are called nadis in Sanskrit, particular energy centers in it called chakras and generally the chakras are at points where the energy channels cross. Now this is all happening on a subtle level, this isn't something that you would be able to see inside a body. If you cut a body open you wouldn't see these things. So they're existing on a subtle level, these are flows of what's called prana, in China it's called chi, in Japan it's called ki, this is a particular kind of spiritual energy. And part of the process of spiritual awakening in order to realize the state of yoga involves purifying these energetic channels and these chakras or these energetic centers. And the breathing practices of pranayama are practices that purify these energetic channels in certain ways. So the breath is related to the flow of prana. You know, if we change the flow of our breath, it changes the flows of prana in the body. And when the pr pranic flows change, they change the way that these energetic channels purify and become clear. And the chakras become clear as a result of that. So that's how pranayama is a yogic practice, why it leads ultimately to yoga, to the experience of divine realization or unity with the divine. But what about asana? 
So one of the things about the human body is that when we stretch the human body, we don't just stretch the physical muscles, we actually also stretch these energetic channels. And when you stretch the energetic channels, it causes more prana to flow through them. And when more prana flows through them, the channels become purified. So this is something that can be directly experienced by people who are engaged in these practices. There's a certain point at which we begin to develop the ability to feel flows of prana in the body. We begin to be able to see flows of prana in the body. We even begin to be able to hear flows of prana in the body. So we can see, feel and hear what is happening. And so as we perform these various yogic postures, each posture will purify different energetic channels and different chakras and gradually that leads to the purification of the whole system and to the whole body becoming fully ecstatic. And that ecstasy is one of the factors of enlightenment or one of the factors of liberation. Ecstasy actually merges with bliss at a certain point leading to the experience of unity or the experience of yoga. And then we gradually see more asanas being brought into the practice of yoga over time. Uh, by about 500 years ago, there's a text called the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and in there we start seeing sitting toe touch, Paschimottanasana. Uh, we start seeing butterfly, Bhattakonasana. We start seeing peacock. So asanas being added to uh, the sort of list of asanas that are used in the practice of yoga. And then in the 16th century, uh, we start seeing headstand being included and so on. And there's uh, various texts that mention 84 asanas. So gradually over time, this practice of using asanas to purify the subtle nervous system or the system of nadis and chakras is built up. And we even see in the text, so in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, we see one line which says uh, this asana, referring to Paschimottanasana or sitting toe touch, it actually says this asana purifies the central nervous uh, channel, the Sushumna Nadi. So the yogis knew what they were doing, they knew what the asanas did, how they worked. And in that text, it even goes on to say that when the prana or the spiritual energy is brought into the central channel, into the Sushumna Nadi, the yogi will experience samadhi. So samadhi is a state of consciousness where we transcend the mind. So we're experiencing uh, transcendence, which leads to moksha and to the experience of yoga or unity. And then, of course, in the 20th century, we saw the massive uh, expansion of asana practice beyond just the 84 that are mentioned in the Sanskrit texts, or the earlier Hatha Yoga Sanskrit texts. So one thing I haven't mentioned so far is the Dvaita schools, the Dvaita schools of Bhakti Yoga. 
and this is actually one of the most common forms of yoga practiced in the world. So what is a Dvaita school? So you might have heard of the term Advaita, which is very common in the West. Nowadays Advaita means non-duality. So this is the experience of everything as one, as everything as Brahman. And so non-duality in the sense of not two, not two things. But Dvaita means two, or dual, or two things that are separate. So there are many schools of yoga are Dvaita schools, which means that there is the divine and then the self, and there are schools where people worship the divine. So the divine could be in any kind of form. It might be as Krishna, it might be as the Buddha, it might be as Shiva, it might be as Lakshmi or Kali, or it might be simply devotion towards truth or to love, or to peace, or to divine realization. So the actual object of desire can take any form, the object of devotion can take any form. But essentially these schools of yoga, these are schools of bhakti yoga, there's one form of bhakti yoga, they're essentially schools where there are two separate things, there's you and then there's the object of your devotion, or the object of your love, you might say. So if these schools involve two separate things, how can they be yoga? How can the practices that they do be called yoga, or the state of realization that is attained to be called yoga, when there's this fundamental separation? So this is when we go back to those two ways of understanding what the word yoga means. One way was to look at the texts, to look at context, to look at how the word is used. The other way is through direct experience. What happens when we actually do the practices? What happens when we experience the fruits of our practice? And the actual experience, when we engage in these practices of devotion, these practices of surrendering to the divine, gradually the self the individual self that is separate becomes less. It becomes kind of cleansed or washed away. And it becomes so washed away that in the end, all that is experienced everywhere is the divine, is the beloved. So that's how these Dvaita schools of yoga actually lead to yoga, actually lead to liberation and to unity and oneness. So we've looked at quite a number of different practices. As you can see, the practices in yoga are vast. Uh, there are many, but they all have this one common thing, this one common element. They all ultimately lead to the experience of unity, the experience of oneness, and to the experience of divine realization, or seeing everything everywhere as divine, and everyone as the divine.